Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for the chance we have to gather as your people tonight. Thanks that you've given us the scriptures, that you've given uh, even these words to King Nebuchadnezzar to speak of your power and your majesty and your sovereignty and how you deal with proud people like him and like us. We pray now that you might uh, transform us by your word, uh, that we might see the gospel clearly uh, and be humbled as your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Now, I want to begin by asking, have you ever stolen something? I don't want your hands up. Don't do that. That could be awkward. But uh, have you ever stolen anything? When I was in primary school, collecting these little footy cards was a really big deal. We used to buy these packets. You'd go to the newsagent and you would buy a packet of footy cards and in there would be this uh, five footy cards and this little stick of chewing gum. It wasn't really about the gum. Uh, my brother and I uh, were about eight at the time. What we wanted was the cards because we wanted to collect the whole set. Uh, that was the thing, that if you wanted to be like the guy at school, you had the whole set of footy cards. Uh, the problem was we didn't have enough pocket money to buy the like 200 cards required. Uh, and so we did what our friends were doing and everyone was doing it and we were all raiding the coin jar of our dads. Uh, see, I don't know, you might, you might not know, but there was a time where we used to pay for things with cash and you would get change and you would end up with these coins in your pockets. And at the end of the day, often lots of dads, they would just kind of have a jar in their, in their dressing room and they'd just dump the coins in the jar. Um, if your dad was diligent, then he'd kind of, kind of collect all the coins out of the jar and go and spend them on something later. But um, my dad wasn't that diligent. He'd just dump them there and they just kept accumulating and accumulating. And so my brother and I thought we could fuel our footy card addiction by helping ourselves to the coins in the jar. We were stealing, right? We were taking stuff that wasn't ours. We would start off with small stuff like 5, 10, 20 cent pieces, but then we moved up to the gold coins and then eventually... I was so desperate to get more and more footy cards, I eventually started to pinch some of the notes out of the pockets of his pants that he left behind. I knew it was wrong, and I really knew it was wrong when the guy at the newsagent started to ask some questions about where I got these rather large notes from. Uh, he didn't say no, I couldn't buy the cards though. So uh, We can all agree that stealing is wrong, right? Stealing's horrible, especially when you're on the receiving end, if you're the victim. I had uh, some friends who came home from church once, and as they walked up to their front door, they realised they'd been kicked in. And as they walked into the house, they heard the back door slam as some thieves took off with their most valuable possessions. Has that ever happened to you? If it has, you know the feeling of being sick to your stomach, that, that the thought that someone has come and they have gone through your stuff and they have taken your most valuable, your most treasured, your most personal possessions. Things that are not theirs to take. Things that they have no right to have. And it makes you feel angry and furious. And, and, and for a whole lot of people, if we caught the culprits, well, it wouldn't be very pretty, would it? See, stealing is a fairly black and white issue, we'd have to say. It, most people would say that kind of in almost all times and in almost places, all places, stealing is wrong. Uh, we're not supposed to take something that doesn't belong to us. Uh, you know, we teach this to our children. If you have children, the moment that they can start to snatch toys off other children, you'll teach them. We don't take things from other people. Tonight in Daniel chapter 4, we see that even the great king of Babylon, he is guilty of stealing. A man who, who thought he had it all, even he takes something that doesn't belong to him. 
So here in chapter 4, the main man is King Nebuchadnezzar. He actually is the guy who wrote this uh, chapter of Daniel, how it got to be part of Daniel's book, who knows, but uh, he, he, he's writing a letter to you about God. Uh, he's been, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who's been in charge of these first four chapters of the book of Daniel. Uh, and the king that we meet here, he is a person who has tickets on himself. King Nebuchadnezzar reckons he is special. He actually reckons he's the best. Uh, this guy is so kind of full of himself, he'd put kind of Kanye West in the shade. Uh, have, a, have a look in verse 29 and how, how, how full of himself he is. Verse 29, as the king was walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built and the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is impressed with what he's achieved and he's done it for himself. He's done it because he is the greatest, he says. Now, his royal city, it was pretty impressive. Uh, the royal city of Babylon, it was a sight to behold. There, uh, there are some people out there who are so full of themselves, it's kind of okay because they're so good. We kind of let them get away with it. Now, Usain Bolt is one who comes to mind. Uh, uh, he, he was phenomenal. He took world records without even looking. This is the 100 metres final at the Olympics, and he's just smiling <laughs> as he strides away to win in world record time. And so because he is so good, he's so impressive, he shows off all the time and, and, and we're okay with that because he's like the best. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was impressive too. And we might be forgiven for the kind of, kind of living, get, letting him have a bit of rope, having a bit of leeway. We'd probably let him get away with this boasting as well if we had seen the sorts of things he had done. I mean, he'd run rings around the rest of us. For example, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's wife... She was getting homesick, right? Uh, she missed the lush forests of her home country. And so what did the king do? Well, he built her a garden. But he didn't just build her any garden. He built her the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's certainly a lot better than some flowers from Countdown on his way home from the office. And so maybe King Nebuchadnezzar, he's an impressible guy. Maybe he, can, maybe he is allowed to flex a little bit. He's high above his royal city. He's surveying the scene. He looks down at everyone and everything around him and he says two things. He says, look at what I've done and look at who I am. Look at what I've done and look at who I am. Verse 30, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was building his significance. He was basing his security on those two things, on what he had done and on who he was, that he alone thought he had achieved great things, that he alone was a great person. And the Bible, it's got a word for this sort of self-importance. The Bible's word for this self-importance is pride. It's pride. King Nebuchadnezzar was proud now, the thing for the king was that uh, he had one problem. For all his wealth, for all his, his power, for all his significance, his problem was he couldn't get a good night's sleep. Have a look there in chapter 4. We're going to see it runs a little bit like chapter 2, if you were here a few weeks ago. See, in chapter 4, we see the king is troubled again by bad dreams. His in-house spiritual advisors, the wise men, they cannot help him get to the bottom of what's going on. And so in comes our old mate Daniel. Uh, now, Daniel's had some experience with this sort of thing, he, and he's able to interpret the dream for the king. 
Now, you can read all about the dream in verses 9 to 17, but basically the, tr- the king is dreaming about this massive tree. Now, you're not, you know, your dreams might not be filled with massive trees, but in this dream, uh, this tree is no ordinary tree. This massive tree, it provides for the whole land. Now, in Babylonian times, there's lots of drawings of big trees like this one. And this tree, it was a symbol of the keeper of the universe. You see, it was the closest that the Babylonians got to ever talking about the real God of the Bible. And so here in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this tree. And then in verse 13, a messenger turns up an angel and they demand that the tree is cut down and only the stump remains. And in verse 15, we see that this tree, it actually is not just a tree, but it represents a person. Take a look, it says there in verse 15, it says, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human being, and let him be given the mind of an animal until time passes by, until seven times pass by for him. So in this dream, we have this tree, which runs the universe, but then is cut down, it goes mad, has to crawl around like the animals in the rain for seven years. What is all that about? Well, it's not actually all that complicated, as Daniel says in verse verse 22. Verse 22, you, O king, are that tree. Or at least, you think you are. He says to the king, you think you run the universe, but you don't. You think you're the most important man in town, but you're not. And God is going to act to humble you, to teach you, King, that he alone is God. And you'll only get your kingdom back when you have been brought low, only when you acknowledge that God is God and you are not. And then in Daniel adds in verse 27, a kind of a get out of jail free uh, kind of, clause, hey King Nebuchadnezzar, you can kind of short circuit this whole thing. Uh, If only you'd say sorry to God right now and start acting as though other people like poor people really matter. But King Nebuchadnezzar ignores Daniel's offer and 12 months later nothing changes. 12 months later King Nebuchadnezzar is saying look at what I've done, look at who I am and then verse 31, verse 31, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Now, the king had been warned, and now he is reaping the consequences of his pride for seven years until he finally admits to God that God is God and that he is not. Uh, Now, this time, uh, this is the the third time we've really seen King Nebuchadnezzar have a bit of a change of heart in uh, Daniel so far, Uh, but this time he seems to be a changed man. This time he didn't kind of shuffle the the, the gods along his shelf and make room for another one like he did in chapters 2 and 3. This time he admits that there is only one God. Look at those incredible words from verse 34. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him 
who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, it's all as, as, exactly as it should be. The greatest king on earth bows before the only true king, the only one who reigns forever. The greatest king on earth has been humbled by the true king. And Nebuchadnezzar's final verdict on all this, can you see there in verse 37? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You see, God has dealt with Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and his pride, and he's realized that God always, sooner or later, always he acts to bring the proud back down to size. And that last sentence in chapter 4, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's, it's almost certainly the most important sentence in that whole chapter. It's what the whole chapter is all about. Because this is something that we really need to know about God. This is how God acts. He always acts like this. And the reason is, the reason why he always will humble the proud the reason is because pride is stealing from God. Pride is stealing from God. Pride is taking the glory and honour that God deserves. It is taking the good gifts and ignoring him as the giver. It is thinking we don't need God, his word or his rule. It's thinking that our life and our world would be better off without him. It's ignoring God as the sovereign creator and ruler of all. And God's not going to let King Nebuchadnezzar, as great as he was, he's not going to let him get away with it unpunished. And he won't let us get away with it either. Now, we might not have gone up to God's house and kicked in the door. We might not have rummaged through his closet and stolen uh, his, his, his nice, nicest things. We might not be jumping his back fence with his laptop tucked under our arm. But we've all robbed God. We've all taken something that belongs to him something that is not rightfully ours. See, the Bible is clear from cover to cover that we, we all claim uh, for ourselves the glory that God only deserves. We all claim for ourselves the credit that is only due to him. We all take his stuff, the good things of his creation, and we use it for ourselves because we think we're entitled to it. We all rob him, his position, him of his position as the sovereign Lord, the creator God, the king of kings, when we refuse to listen to him, when we refuse to obey him, when we refuse to let him rule over our whole life as he should. And why do we do this? Why do we take his glory? Why do we fleece him of his good gifts? Why do we rob him of his right position in our lives? Why do we do it? It's because of pride. It's because we're proud people. We think that we deserve the glory and honour and praise for ourselves. Because we're proud, we think we deserve the good things that come our way in life. We think that we've earned them for ourselves. Because we're proud, we think we know what is best when it comes to living our lives. And we say, God, you can just shove off, please. 
You see, our pride causes us to reach into what belongs only to God and claim it for ourselves. You see, pride has us thinking like King Nebuchadnezzar. See, pride means that we get into bed at night and we we feel good about ourselves because of what we've achieved without any reference to God. It might be your exam results or the job or the money that you've made or the friends that you have. It could be any number of things, some significant, some trivial, and it's taking these things and saying to ourselves, look at what I have done. Look at what I have achieved all on my own. That's pride. And pride is getting up in the morning and feeling good about ourselves because of who we are without any reference to God. King Nebuchadnezzar, he looked into the mirror and he said to himself, you're very majestic, you are regal, you are very impressive. And for us, we might not kind of look into the mirror and say those sorts of words out loud, but we might think silent to ourselves, I really am a good person. I'm honest and upright, I've got real integrity, I'm I'm more intelligent, maybe I'm more thought out, more cultured, more attractive, more hardworking, more more dependable than all these other people. We might even feel good about ourselves, and this is a particularly Kiwi thing, we might feel good about ourselves because we think we're more humble than other people. In reality, it's just pride. Now, it's important to be clear, it's fine to, to, to take the light in the things we'd have achieved, but it's pride to think we did it all on our own. It's fine to be thankful for who we are and who God is making us to be, but it's pride to think that we're better than anyone else. I've got a real-world example for you. Um, in about 25 minutes, when uh, the, the main part of our service is over, uh, we're going to share dinner together. And, uh, and we'll all enjoy our dinner. And about 8 o'clock, a bit after 8 o'clock, uh, things will be winding up and there'll be a few people hanging around. And the dilemma for some of us will be, do I help tidy up and get on with packing things away or do I keep talking and finish this conversation I'm having? And for those of us who hop up from our chairs and start collecting bowls and head to the kitchen and start washing up, as we look around at the people who are still talking, there may be a little voice in our head that says, at least some of us aren't afraid of some hard work. And we'll start to feel good about ourselves because because of what we've done, because of who we are in relation to those lazy talkers over there. But for those of you who can choose to continue your conversations, you're hearing about the horrible week that someone's had and you're going to spend some time praying about some things that are coming up, is there a little voice in your head that says at least some of us care about people and we're not just getting things done? And so we begin to feel good about ourselves because of what we've done or because of who we are in relation to those task-orientated folk who just don't care about people. Now, we're probably self-aware and middle-class enough to not say these thoughts out loud, but they do rummage around in our heads, don't they? We find ourselves thinking, look at what I've done. Look at who I am. We hear ourselves saying, what a, what a great job I'm doing. I really am a good person. We're in the same boat as King Nebuchadnezzar. We're proud. We're stealing from God what is rightfully his. And as we see here in Daniel chapter 4, God humbles the proud. The sovereign God will not allow proud people, he will not allow them to rob him of the glory that is his alone. If we need any confirmation of this, have a look in James chapter 4, starting at verse 6. It'll come up on the screen. Now, this is what James 
has to say. Uh, that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, God is in the business of bringing proud people back down to science. But why does God have such a problem with it? It's because he is the king. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the ruler over all. And that means that all pride is an attack, it's an attack on his right to be God. All pride is a rejection of his authority. All pride is saying that we are more important, that we know more than God himself. All pride is actually an a, a, a expression of self-reliance, that, that, that we don't need God and we don't need his help. But what it is, is as we saw, it's stealing from God. It's taking what is his and claiming it for ourselves. It's, it's robbing him of his majesty and glory and honour. Which is why pride is a big deal. Which is why uh, the reformer John Calvin wrote these words, which sum it up really well for us. Calvin wrote, God cannot bear seeing his glory stolen by his creatures. To even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who by praising themselves obscure his glory as far as they can praising ourselves instead of giving God the glory that he deserves this is how God feels about pride he takes it incredibly seriously and if this is how serious that God takes pride then we desperately need his help to deal with it don't we we need God to humble us so how does that happen? How does God humble proud people like you and like me? Well, thankfully God doesn't do uh, to all of us what he did to King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't worry. I don't think that God's going to make you kind of crawl around and eat grass like an animal in the rain for seven years. Because God's got another way that he deals with proud people. It's through the message of the gospel. It's through the message of Jesus' death on a cross. You see, God deals with our pride by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. And by telling us that Jesus has died on the cross for us. And by telling us that he died on the cross because we are proud. And then God asks us to face up to the reality. And how does that humble us? How does the message of the cross naturally bring proud people back into perspective? Well, here's how it works. As we see Jesus, as we see God in the flesh, the only perfect human who has ever lived, as we see him dying on a criminal's cross, God is saying to us, he's saying to you, Jesus is hanging there instead of you. He is hanging there because of you. That had to happen to Jesus because of your pride. That had to happen to Jesus because... Because you said to me, you didn't want me in your life. Because you said you wanted to be God on your own. That had to happen to Jesus because you think that you're better than other people. Through the message of the cross, through the gospel, God exposes exactly what we have done. 
by showing that Jesus had to die, that he had to face the punishment that we deserved, that Jesus had to die and face the anger that we had provoked. When we realize that, God shocks us out of our pride. It's when we look at the cross and we can see it clearly. That's when we see it clearly, we suddenly realize the enormity of what we have done. And that's when we need to do the only thing that makes sense at that point, which is to say sorry to God. To repent of our pride. John Stott, one of the um, most influential Bible teachers of the last 50 years, he says this. He says this. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. That means when God punctures our pride with the gospel, when he defeats our pride by reminding us that Jesus died for us, what God is doing here is defeating our greatest enemy and he's introducing us to our best friend. You see, in the gospel we see that God loves us so much, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, but he loves us so much that he was willing to send his son to die for people like us so that we might be forgiven. And it's only when we humble ourselves, that is, when we face the truth, that like King Nebuchadnezzar, we are proud people. It's only then, when we humble ourselves, can God lift us up, helping us to stand tall, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because we are loved by him because of his mercy and his grace. It's here where God deals with our pride, our greatest enemy, and he introduces us to humility, our greatest friend. So let us humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing that he will lift us up. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word says that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you, our God, the creator, the sovereign Lord. Lord, we humble ourselves before you, and Lord, we pray that you will lift us up. Lord, we are sorry that we have stolen from you the glory, the honour, and praise that you deserve. Lord, we're sorry that we thought we knew better to run our lives our own way. Lord, we thank you that in dealing with our pride, you have saved us and loved us in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we might be restored, that we might be lifted up because Christ has died for us. And Lord, we pray all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. If the mutas want to come up,